0: Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, October 24th, 2021. We continue our series titled, Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Objections Overruled, will be taught to us by Pastor Thomas Slager out of Romans chapter three, verses one through eight. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon.
1: How is it possible that the obedience of the word of God, that the compliance to the word of God could in fact still remain sinful? and driven from something that is not of God but is driven from our own self-righteousness. For all of us at any one time have in fact an aspect of legalism in our heart that we spend most of our time trying to prove other people wrong and prove ourselves right. It's easy to point to the person who suffers from license. The person who knows what they're doing is wrong but they do it anyway. It's obvious. But today, what we're going to learn is that it's equally obvious that we not only repent and stand before a holy God of our ungodly behaviors that everyone sees, but that we also stand before him and repent of our self-righteousness because there are, in fact, people watching.
0: How many of you have ever been a part of like a big renovation project, kind of ripping out the old stuff and trying to put in the new stuff? You know how the, the process of ripping out the old stuff kind of seems like it's never going to end? How You thought it was just one thing, and then you remove that thing, and you realize, oh, there's actually a, a different problem <laughs> back there. So we start working on that one, but then realize, oh, no, <laughs> that's not the problem. <laughs> there's actually a different underlying problem. And then you feel like you've finally diagnosed the issue. But then when you go to fix the issue, you realize it's actually a much larger underlying problem. And before long, like you're looking at the foundation of the building itself, and you're kind of left wondering, hey, at what point do I get to start putting stuff back up? At what point does this actually start to look pretty again? At what point do we get to actually do the renovation part, not just the demolition part? That's kind of the part that we are in of the book of Romans, Okay, We got to the part where we, let's, it's just a little hole. Let's patch the drywall, but then realized oh, the wall's got to come out. So we ripped the drywall out, hoping it's not that big of an issue. But then actually the studs have to come out. And then, and then before long, we're messing with foundations, like foundational level stuff when it comes to us, our pursuit of Jesus, and the problem we have that God calls sin. It's worse than we thought. That's what we've learned so far in the book of Romans, is that our problem of being a sinner is worse than we thought. And pretty soon here, we're actually going to start building things back up. We're going to start kind of to make it look nice again. And we're going to do that, I promise you. It's, we're, it's, we're going to talk about grace and love and mercy and God demonstrating his love for us while we're sinners. and, and all. And, and we've been talking about that a little bit, but pretty soon we're going to be talking about it a lot. Which is not today. Today, we realize beneath the foundation, there's actually like a termite problem. Um, And we fixed the termites and then realized we built our house on a sinkhole. Um, So we're going to continue on in this demolition project, but eventually we're going to turn the corner. Romans 3 verses 1 through 8, you're going to see a whole lot of question marks. There's Uh, nine question marks in eight verses, which is kind of weird. I don't think I've ever preached a passage with this many questions in it. Um, What we're gonna see is Paul answering objections to some questions, or answering objections that these listeners most likely had. See, at this point, Paul's been preaching this gospel message for 20-something years. At the time he writes to the church in Rome, he's been preaching the gospel for 20-something years. And as you can imagine, if you're preaching the same message to a group of people for 20 years, you can probably anticipate the questions they might ask the objections they might have. Think of it like this. I I know my kids pretty, pretty well. And I kind of know what they're going to ask before they're even going to ask me. Uh, And they might come and say, hey, Dad, can we? And before they even say it, the answer is just no. (laughs) No, we can't. But I didn't even, no. The answer is still no. I didn't even ask. But I know, I know what you're going to ask. What am I going to ask? You're going to ask me if you can play Rocket League. And the answer is no. Well, how come? I told you. I knew the answer. I'll tell you the how come. Um, the how come is because we haven't eaten dinner. Your room's are wreck. You haven't finished your homework, and you stink. That's why we can't play Rocket League. Was that the question? No. Right. It's like I, I know. I know. I know the question you're going to ask. I knew it. And that's what Paul's doing. He's been preaching this message for twenty-something years, and he knows the questions. He knows the objections. So at this point in the letter to the church in Rome, he just stops and answers some of these questions and objections he knows the people have. So Romans chapter three, verses one through eight. Let me read it. Then I'll pray for us again and we'll hop in. Verse one begins, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you would be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil, that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. God, though it's my voice that's been heard, we know it's your word that's been spoken, and this morning we trust your word is the authority for our life. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict us this morning, convict us Um, of our sins also that you'd open our eyes that we would see Jesus more clearly. You'd open our ears to hear you, our minds to know the Father and our hearts to respond in love. God, but everything we do and say in this place ultimately done for your glory and your glory alone and all God's people said, Amen. Four objections that we're going to see in this passage. Structurally, just as you follow along, because as I said before, there is a lot of question marks going on here, and it's kind of weird just to read at face value. Think of odd number verses, so 1, 3, 5, 7. Odd number verses being the questions and objections. Even numbered verses, 2, 4, 6, 8. Those are his responses to those objections. So we see question, answer. There's four couplets that we see, and that's the structure it's going to follow throughout the whole time. The first question, the first objection deals with the advantage or value of being a Jew and Paul responds with the advantage being the word of God. That's the first point that we see. The first answer he gives is the word of God. If you think back to chapter two, Paul hit a lot on how just being a Jew doesn't save you. Just being circumcised doesn't save you. Just doing the right thing and growing up the right way doesn't guarantee your salvation. So their first objection then is, then what's the point? What's the advantage of being a Jew then? Or what's the value of circumcision? If none of those things save me, then what's the point? Which is really flawed thinking. Like, there's a lot of things we do that don't save us that are still advantageous and valuable to our life, right? I grew up in a Christian home. That didn't save me. Didn't guarantee anything. But it was incredibly advantageous and valuable to grow up with a mom and dad who loved each other and loved Christ, to grow up in a family who was in church really regularly, to grow up with a family who prioritized things like church camps and youth programs and everything else so that we were immersed in the word of God a lot. A lot, a lot. Like there was, It was annoying sometimes how much we were immersed in Christian culture stuff. But it was advantageous and valuable. Grew up in a Bible-teaching church, submitting ourselves to the word of God. We were just open much like we do today. I grew up in this church, so it makes sense. We're still just... Telling people what God said, but that's incredibly valuable. Just to open the word and hear what God says. To be in a small group, incredibly valuable, incredibly advantageous. Doesn't save you. Small group can't save you. Here's the community in your group that can't save you. Jesus can, those people can't. Still valuable. Going on a missions trip. We've got a team going to Rocky Point. Like that, that's incredibly valuable, incredibly advantageous. Does that save them? Everyone say no. No, it doesn't doesn't save them. Being here this morning, like that's incredibly valuable. It's super advantageous that you're here submitting yourself to the word of God. That's a really good thing. Does just being in like attendance at church, does that save you? No, it doesn't save you. But it's still advantageous. It's still valuable to do any of those things. So the question here, then what's the point? If it doesn't save me, then what's the point? And Paul says, well, what advantage? What value? Well, he says much in every way. To begin with, first of all, I mean, y'all were entrusted with the word of God. What advantage did you have? God spoke to your people. What advantage did you have? God chose you. What value was there in being a Jew? God revealed his written, his oracles to you. Not the Jebusites. Not the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the otherites, the other Eans, all the other guys. Not to them. He revealed himself to you. I always thinking about it. What advantage does it then? If just doing the right thing, well, he says, man, the word of God, that's the advantage. God gave you the word of God and we know the word of God in our life is incredibly advantageous. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, for the word of God is living and active. Living and active. How many of you are big time readers? You love reading stuff. Um, reading for fun, reading for study, everything. That's great, man, keep doing it. Guess what? None of those books are alive and active. Could be a good read. Could tug on your heartstrings, can't cut your heart like this one can. The Word of God is alive, it's living, it's active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no other book like it. There's nothing else like it. To have God's Word in our life is an advantage, it is valuable. And to remove the word of God from our life is to disadvantage our life. Think of it like this. Uh, I play all sorts of sports at home with my boys. I'm like a good dad. I let them win for a little while and then I crush them. I just win. I'm bigger, stronger, faster, better. All the things. So I beat them. Badly. I will normally play a game or two and they'll say, let's do it again. Let's wrestle again. I said, okay. But this time you have to tie your hands behind your back. How am I going to play football with my hands behind my back? Why are you making me do that? Because you're better, you're bigger, you're stronger and faster. You have the advantage. So what do they do? They disadvantage me to make it fair. If having the word of God in our life is to advantage our life, then removing the word of God is to disadvantage our life. And it's kind of like we got a bunch of Christians taking their hands and tying them behind their own back removing the good gift, removing the value, removing the advantage that God has actually given us. May it not be said that that's what we do at Highlands Church. Let's embrace the gift. Let's use the advantage. Let's use the value. Open the word of God and live our lives according to what it says. The first thing he talks about is the word of God. The second thing he hits on is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. Second question, what if some were unfaithful What if some of God's chosen people were unfaithful? This is the team that God picked. If the team that God picked is unfaithful, follow-up question, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? If the team that God picked did a bad job, isn't that really on God? Isn't that kind of his fault? Why are we being judged for him picking a bad team? This is, it's totally human logical thinking and he's going to touch on this momentarily. Let's talk about sports for a second. You have a a GM who picks a team and a coach who coaches the team. If the team does a horrendous job, the coach or the GM typically gets fired. Why? Because they point the finger to them. Y'all should have done a better job. Your team did bad. That's your fault. So we take this thinking and we impress it upon God, right? If God's team does a bad job, is it the team's fault Or is it the guy's fault who picked the team? And here he says, um, by no means is that how this works. Does the faithlessness of the team nullify the faithfulness of God, prove that it doesn't exist? And he says, by no means. It's this Greek word, meganoida. Think of it as like uh, meganata. Absolutely not, right? Um, As a dad, I have all sorts of different ways I say no, ranging from like kind of small and Eh, Nah. Nah. No. Nope. Absolutely not. We've got the whole range. And, and, And in this range, the by no means is the absolutely not. Does the faithlessness of God's people nullify the faithfulness of our God? And Paul says, absolutely not. That's not how this works. And then he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then he quotes Psalm 51, 4. As it's written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Psalm 51, verse 4 says this. It says, David, speaking of his sin with Bathsheba, repenting and saying, against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When our faithful God uh, judges faithless people, what this verse is saying is that his words are blameless in that judgment. He's just in that judgment because he's faithful. Even if we're faithless, he remains faithful. This is what the scriptures teach. Second Timothy two, verse 13 says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. He can't deny himself because he is faithful. Faithfulness is not something God does. Faithfulness is something God is. Okay, it's not as if God wakes up on a Sunday morning and he's like, these people don't get it, but I guess I'll keep being faithful to them. I guess I'll go do the faithful. No, it's who he is. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, the assurance that we have in Christ without wavering. Why? For he who promised... Is faithful. He who promised is faithful. How many of you have had someone promise you something in their life and then break a promise? Everyone, please raise your hand or else you're lying in church, right? Everyone has experienced this. Everyone has. And what we do is we take that, that understanding that people break their promises and we impress that upon God. And we say, if people break their promises, then surely God breaks his promises as well. And if that's the case, he really isn't that faithful. But God's the original promise keeper. That's what this says. He who promised is faithful. He is a promise keeper. Lamentations 3, and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Why does his love never cease? It's because he's faithful. His mercies never come to an end. Why does his mercy never end? It's because he's faithful. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. This is what we sing. He's not kind of faithful. He's not faithful sometimes. He is faithful. And his faithfulness is great. That's the second thing we see is the faithfulness of God. The third thing we see in our text is the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. Now the objections, the heat's going to get turned up a little bit because at this point in the conversation, these anticipated objectors, they start saying, but, 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 these, but, these follow-up objections, right? So he says, but, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? In other words, if my evil, my sin, my imperfection reveals just how good, just how perfect God is, if my sinfulness reveals the sinlessness of God, isn't it kind of messed up for God to judge me for doing something that makes Him look so good? see, we giggle and we're like, that doesn't make any sense at all. It makes no sense. But if my evil makes God look so good, aren't I kind of doing him a favor? Aren't I making him look better? And if I'm making him look better, isn't that kind of wrong for him to judge me for doing something that makes him look so good? No, notice the parenthetical clause there. He says, I speak in a human way. Again, this is their logical thinking. It's not theological thinking. This is not the way that God works. And what's his response? It's the meganoida word. By no means. Absolutely not. Then how could God judge the world? Then how could God judge the world? See, Paul knew it was right for God to judge the world. And even the people he's writing to, and even these Jewish objectors, they know it's right for God to judge the world. Well, how so? It's the righteousness of God. That's why he can judge, because he's righteous. He's perfect. Remember those uh, rulers we used to have in elementary school? You buy a ruler every year. You bring your ruler to class. It's that little 12-inch wooden stick. If you were cool, you had the stainless steel one, like the really awesome-looking one that you could smack your friends with. Um, the rulers, right? Think of Jesus as our ruler. Not just the measurement, but also the king, because that's who he is. He is our ruler. He is the Lord. Amen? He is the ruler, but he's also the measurement by which we gauge and measure our righteousness. This is what the Bible says, Matthew 5, 48. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what's the standard? What's the measurement? It's just perfection. It's just to be perfect, that's all. And as we try to measure ourselves up with the perfection of God, we fall short every time. We fall short every time. This is what we're gonna see later on um, in Romans 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us can't measure up to his standard of perfection. It's his righteousness, it's his perfection that enables him to judge. The third thing is the righteousness of God. The fourth thing we see is the judgment of God. The judgment of God. In verses seven through eight, we have more objections. But, 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 but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? So here's the objection. If through all my sin, God looks good, if through all my sin, God looks good, shouldn't I just keep on sinning to make him look better? The second question, why not do evil that good May come, And this is the crazy mystery of the scriptures, right? Because we see people doing evil and God using those evil things to do good and not in such a way that our human brains understand, right? We see like, let's, let's read this one real quick. Genesis 50 verse 20 says this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Here's a question. Who meant it? Yes. Well, who meant it? Who's responsible for the actions? You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. It's not as if Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery and God was like, oh, I don't know how we're gonna redeem this. I'm not sure what to do with this one. I guess we gotta spin it so it ends up to be a good thing. But this verse shows us it was God's plan all along. God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. Let's look at the crucifixion of Jesus. Acts chapter two, verses 22 through 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth... A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So why did Jesus die on a cross? Well, one, because evil people hated him and delivered him up over to be crucified. But why did Jesus die on a cross? Because God sent his son to be crucified. God, people meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And this is the idea that these people are dancing around. Why am I being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good can come? Because that's what we see in the Old Testament. That's what we see in the Scriptures. Evil things done, but good things coming from it. So why not just let sin abound so more good things can happen? And then he includes this. He says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, These people are going around saying, have you heard this message that Paul's preaching? Have you, he's, he's pretty good. He's been doing it for 20-something years. It's the same thing. He's saying, we just tell Jesus, Jesus, forgive me, I love you, and then we just confess like he's Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, and then we go do whatever we want. We just live a life of sin because it's fine because Jesus forgives it all. And also, get this, when we sin, God still makes good things happen from it. We we just say, Jesus, save me, and then we're totally good to do whatever we want the entirety of our lives. That's the way some people are taking Paul's message. And he says they're saying this slanderously. He says their condemnation is just. To think this way, to believe this way, to act this way, it's worthy of just condemnation. That is not the gospel. Romans chapter six, verses one through two says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is what they're looking at, not just the grace abounding, but good things abounding because of our sin. And what's the apostle Paul's response? By no means, absolutely not, meganoida, nope. Nope, that's not how this works. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you're dead to something, you don't live in it. But these people's understanding of the way the gospel works says, man, Jesus died for these things, so we can just do them as much as we want. Paul says, no, by no means. If we're dead to something, you can't be alive to that same thing anymore. We have no license to sin. And Paul says, believing this, believing that you can just let grace abound, it's actually worthy of a just condemnation. If we're dead to sin, we no longer live in it. So there you have it, four objections, four objections to this message that Paul has been preaching for 20-something years, um, I want to give us two responses, two applications that we can look at and apply to our life this morning. And um, this is the part where we're going to need our Bible. So if you have one, make sure you get that out because we're going to hop around, maybe underline some things, highlight some things, write some things down to memorize at some point this week. Um, if not, you can grab your phone. Um, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, there should be one around you somewhere. Take that one. Read it, believe it, do what it says. God will change your life forever. Um, That's another gift we have for you this morning. First application. Man, this scripture says the word of God in our life is an advantage to our life. The word of God God in our life is an advantage to our life. So to remove the word of God from our life is to intentionally disadvantage our life. I don't want to live a disadvantaged life. I don't think you do either. Let's look at a couple passages that talk about it. First one, 2 Timothy chapter three. 2 Timothy chapter three. Verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, All scripture, that's this book, God's Word, the Bible, all scripture is breathed out by God. That's a funny way to say, All scripture is God spoken. All scripture is God's Word. It's breathed out by God. Um, Think of it like this even as I'm talking right now, I'm breathing right? There's breath escaping my lungs, passing over my vocal cords, which creates my voice. That's what happens. The word of God is breathed out. It's God spoken. And it's profitable. He lists four things. It's profitable. It's advantageous. It's valuable to our life. It's profitable for teaching. That's what we're doing here. We're teaching. That's what we do in our small groups. We're teaching when we have um, different viewpoint classes. That's what we do. We're teaching. Um, when we instruct our kids the way the Word of God tells us to, we're, we're teaching, and, and the, the Bible is good for that. It's valuable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, kind of finding the, things where, the the places in our life where we're a little bit off and be like, you know, this doesn't, the Bible says my life should look like this, but my life doesn't exactly look like that, so we reproof ourselves. Or we reprove a brother or a sister in Christ. The Bible is good for that, for calling us out, for correction, for replacing that bad thing with a good thing. Hey, don't do this. This is actually not the way God's calling us to live. Actually, do this. This is the way that God's calling us to live. It's good for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Living our life according to what the word of God says actually helps us live the completed life that God's called us to live. Helps us live in such a way that honors and glorifies him in everything we say and everything that we do. It is Advantageous. It is valuable to remove it from our life. It's to disadvantage our life. Go to Psalm 119 with me. If you're looking for the book of Psalms, um, open your Bible in half and then go left. If you hit Proverbs, go left again. Psalm's a massive book. You'll probably find it in there somewhere. Psalm chapter 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. The longest chapter in the Bible. So I'm just gonna read it really slowly, word by word, and then we'll close in prayer. Psalm 119, you with me? Psalm 119, beginning in verse one, says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. A life lived according to God's word, the Bible is a blessed life. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. How do I know which way to go? How do I know what way to follow if I'm not in it? If I don't know what he asks, if I don't know what he requests, if I don't know how he tells me to live my life, I can't live my life that way. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. When's the last time you learned something new? From God and said, God, thank you. Thank you for that. That's what this says. I'll praise you when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin. Against you, Man, Psalm 119, I'd encourage you, go back this week and read through the whole thing. It reveals just how valuable and advantageous the word of God really is in our life. Would we no longer disadvantage ourselves by intentionally or accidentally or just forgetting about it? Maybe uh, you're new to the Bible, maybe you're new to walking with Jesus and you're trying to figure out, man, what's that look like? This is a really big leather-bound book. Uh, And and you're right. There's a lot of stuff in here. So where do I start? What do I do? Um, We've made a way for you to just hop right in. We have a 31-day reading plan that we put in a bookmark form for you. And we have these back at Info Central this morning. We'll have them back in weeks to come as well. If you're just looking to get into God's word, how do I do this? Do I just start on page one and read all the way through page 1,000 and something? I suppose you can do that. Um, If you want to be in a super long chronological Bible study, we have chronological Bible studies going on. We have small groups going on that are going to help you dive into God's word throughout the week and dissect the stuff we're talking about during our weekend services or a different book study or a video series on parenting, uh, marriage, there's all sorts of things that we're talking about within our small groups that are going to point us back to God's word so we can live the life that God's called us to live. And if reading the Bible is new to you or having a quiet time or a devotional time or a Bible reading time, whatever you want to call it, is new to you, let me encourage you, grab one of these because it's going to serve as a really great guide for you. If it takes you 31 days, great. If it takes you 62 days, great. Whatever it is, grab one of these this morning and hop in and immerse yourself in God's word to see the blessed life that God has for you. In it, The word of God in our life is an advantage to our life. To remove it is to disadvantage our life. The second truth we see and second thing we can apply is that God is truth, God is faithful, and God should be trusted. Not only can he be trusted, but he should be trusted. Take your Bible, go to the left, to the book of Numbers. Fourth book in the Bible, the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're in Numbers. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 says this God is not a man that he should lie and again at some point all of us have been lied to by someone in our life and our human tendency is to take that experience and impress it upon God and say if if people have lied to me surely God will lie to me as well he can't be that much different but this says God's not a man he's not like that that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind he's immutable he's faithful He's the same yesterday as he is today as he will be tomorrow. He's the same, he doesn't change. He was faithful then, he's faithful now. He was trustworthy then, he's trustworthy now. God is truth, God is faithful and God can and should be trusted. Take your Bible, go to Proverbs chapter three. Proverbs chapter three, if you're new to open up the Bible, fold it in half and you're probably really close. Proverbs chapter three, verses five through eight say this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's hard, isn't it? Because my tendency is to figure the stuff out that I can figure out on my own and the stuff I don't get, that's what I give to God. Most of the time we trust in us. Why? Because we have a good education or good experiences or we've been a believer for a while so we probably know the answer and probably know the right direction, probably know the right way to go. But here he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in God, not ourselves. That's what it says. And do not lean on your own understanding. You know, there's some situations where I have pretty good understanding and I can figure it out and be like, yeah, 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 okay, this thing makes quite a bit of sense. There's other situations, just have no idea what to do with it, you know? You have a death in a family and it's totally unexpected. You're like, I I just don't know what to do with that. We had a couple families, first time parents in our church this week um, lose their kids during pregnancy. I don't know how to understand that or explain that. can't, can't even try. All we can do is hurt. Love people, support people, pray for people that they'd experience the peace, the comfort, the compassion of God and the compassion of God's people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Not us, not our understanding, not our will, not our past experiences and our ability to figure something out real quick. Don't trust in us, trust in God. Why? Because in doing so, then the path is made straight. Then we understand where he's bringing us. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It'll be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. How many of you this morning are feeling like you could use a little bit of healing and a little bit of refreshment from the Lord? Let's trust him. Let's trust him, why? Because he is truth. He is faithful. He doesn't just tell the truth, he is truth. He doesn't just do faithful things, he is faithful. It's the same yesterday, the same today. He'll be the same tomorrow. He does not change. He's always been trustworthy. He's always been faithful. He always will be trustworthy. He always will be faithful. Amen? I'm gonna call the worship team back out uh, as we close in worship in just a moment. But man, the word of God is incredibly advantageous to our life. Amen? We should read it. We should get in it. But guess what? Just doing those two things still don't save you. Yeah, and you're here this morning, maybe you've been hanging on to every word. Well, good for you, I haven't been. Um, maybe you're, this is just great and I'm so in it and that, I'm so glad that you're so in it and that it doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. Super into worship and you've been expressive during worship and man, this worship team's awesome and, and this is a great song and you're right there in it. You're right there with the rest of us. It still doesn't save you. Later this week, you're going to hop in your small group and talk about the message that we've done this morning and and just the entire experience of the Sunday morning. Maybe a conversation you had with a friend or a moment in worship that stood out to you and you're going to dive deep in your small group about those things. Those are great things. Those great things don't save you. Man, maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you've known nothing else except a mom and a dad who love Jesus and love each other and they lead you in the right way all the time. That's great. I'm so glad mom and dad are a Christian. Guess what? That don't save you. What does? Jesus, that's the gospel. The Bible says all of us are sinners and that's a, that's a big problem. That's what separates us from God. That's the one thing keeping us from having a right relationship with the Lord. But God loved us so much, the Bible says God did something about it. He sent his only son who lived a perfect life that you and I can't live. He died a death that you and I deserve to die to pay the penalty for our sins, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, defeating death that in Christ, when we confess in him and trust in him, then we can truly live. So maybe you've been trusting in something else this morning. Maybe you've been trusting in yourself. Maybe you've been trusting in your good works. Maybe you've been um, trusting in some other religion that you've been trying. Maybe you're, you're trusting in pleasure. You're, who knows what thing you could be trusting in this morning. Jesus says he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through him. This morning, would you look upon him and trust in him? Amen? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. help us see just how advantageous and valuable it is for our life. God, would it not just be a centerpiece on a coffee table, a centerpiece on our nightstand, a heavy bookend for the rest of the books we read? But would it be something that we desire to open and read it, believe it, and do what it says, and in doing so, find ourselves living a life that truly honors and glorifies you? God, above all else, we thank you for your son Jesus who came and died and rose again that we can live with you forever. God, help us embrace that communion with you this week. We'd seek after you, that we'd spend time with you, that we'd love you, that we'd listen, that we'd obey. And that through our good deeds, that people would see, um, they'd see those good deeds and praise you and wanna know what's going on in our life and ultimately they'd, they, they'd question who you are and, and in the way of Jesus. God, thanks for letting us gather this morning um, and listen to the preaching of the word of God. Would we align our hearts, our lives, our minds, everything closer to the way that you'd have us live according to your word. And then we do so for your glory and your glory alone. Jesus, we love you. And all God's people said, amen. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come out down front. If you're here this morning and you just wanna pray with someone about anything at all going on in your life, uh, maybe you have some questions about life, maybe this morning, today is the day that you place your faith and trust in Jesus. You're done trusting in yourself. You're done trusting in something else other than the person and work of Christ. Come talk to one of these people down here this morning. We'd love to just have a conversation with you, pray with you, um, and point you in the right direction so you can start growing in your newfound faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, if, If you have not been in your Bible a whole lot, grab one of those bookmarks this morning. Um, and just hop into that reading plan. uh, For the rest of us, men, if that's you, maybe you are in the word every day, congratulations. Let Highlands Church be a church that is a Bible church where every single day we are in the word of God. We read it, we believe it, and we actually do what it says. And in doing so, we find ourselves living the advantageous, valuable life that Christ has called us to live, amen? We love you guys, love each other. We'll see you next week, bye-bye.